0: Uh, my wife jokingly talks about the fact that she lives with three extroverts, including a dog, you know. Um, and so most of us don't like to be alone. You know, the dog, when she knows we're leaving in the morning, she, um, we're getting ready for work and school, she kind of curls up in her little bed. She won't even look at you. She just kind of tucks her head down there, won't even roll her eyes up and look at you. You talk to her, say goodbye to her, you know. Or, um, and then if we go, if we come home during the day and then we leave again, that's even worse because now she's at the door, <laughs> you know just whining and begging you because she doesn't want to be left home it's like the worst possible torture you could uh, you could account uh, you could make happen for her my son when he gets home the first thing he does is he comes in the door and he says hello is anybody here you know i don't know if he's trying to test in the waters that he can figure out what he can or can't do if nobody's home but he always wants to know is anybody there is anybody home you know it's not uncommon for me to come home and if my wife is at home by herself at night to come home and all the lights in the house will be on because she doesn't like to be at home by herself at night um, and she wants someone to be there. But as I thought about being alone, I thought there's more than just being physically alone. There's times when you can be around lots of people and you can still feel very lonely. And I thought of some times in my life when I was around plenty of people, but I still felt alone in my high school years, I remember trying to sort out a lot of things about life and relationships and, and internal struggles. And I remember, you know, wrestling with, with sexual temptations. I couldn't figure out what to do with it. And who could I talk to? You know, I was a pastor's kid. Who do you talk to when you're the pastor's kid, you know, about things like that. And, and I just felt really, really, really alone during my teenage years. Um, you know, when Christine and I started dating, I thought, well, maybe maybe if I'm in a relationship, then that will help some of those aloneness factors. But there were times we were dating, times we weren't dating, kind of on and off for a little bit. And those were times when I felt incredibly alone as well. But then I thought, well, well, once I convince her to marry me, then she'll be with me forever and she won't be able to be away from me and I will have someone there with me. And, and I realized shortly after we were married that there's even times with a couple, with the person that you love more than anyone else in the world that you can be in the same house maybe in the same room and just feel very very alone and then recently in my own personal journey over the last few years um, began to look at some things in my past and my story and my family of origin and and wrestling with God and trying to make some sense out of a lot of my story and in those moments even with God I felt incredibly incredibly alone And I realized as I thought about this that being alone is part of our experience. But it's not what God's designed us for. He said that in Genesis when he said to Adam, he said, it's not good for you to be alone. Now some of you, especially if you're raising young children, you're thinking, alone sounds really nice right now. You know, can I just have a few moments of peace and quiet, you know? Um, But for some of you, the thought of being alone is scary. It's very scary. And maybe for you it's kind of like your worst nightmare to be alone. Maybe you've watched too many episodes of Criminal Minds. That's why you're not afraid of being alone, you know. Um, but for for a lot of people, being alone is a very frightening thing. But it's part of our lives, part of what we experience and the reason it's so hard for us is because God has not designed us to be that way he's designed us to be in relationships with other people and so this morning we're going to look at us at a psalm that David wrote as he wrestled with how to handle being alone and if you haven't been here with us this summer we've been in a series entitled the heart and struggles of David and the story of David is recorded in the Bible in the books of first and second Samuel But those stories mostly record the historical events. David went here and he did this and he fought this battle here and he was involved with this person. He had a conversation with this person. That's what the historical account provides for us. But it doesn't tell you what was David thinking? What was he feeling? What were his anxieties? What were his fears? What were his the things that he had confidence that gave him the ability to go and fight that giant and and go and stand up to Saul and, and go and defeat the Philistines. We don't know any of that stuff until we get to the book of Psalms. And there are Psalms that David wrote that crack his heart and soul open and give us a glimpse of what's going on on the inside. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're here as a guest today, we're honored that you're here with us and... Um, if you're in the process of exploring or considering the issues of faith and kind of wrestling with where you are at in that journey, um, I hope today gives you the confidence to take another step forward in considering a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with God. If If you are a person of faith, I hope that today reinforces that and reminds you that in those moments when life comes at you and you're not expecting it and you're alone, that even in those times, that God is available and there for you. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. That's the Psalm that we're going to be in this morning. Psalm 142. It's page 507 on the Bibles that our guys are going to pass out. We encourage you to follow along uh, in one of those Bibles if you have your own or on your phone or tablet this morning. And as you're turning to Psalm 102, let me just refresh your memory on David's situation, what he was going through. Um, David, the story that's probably most well known is he killed the, killed the giant, killed Goliath. And so David kills Goliath and he's hailed as a hero. Um, he's invited by Saul, the king of the land of Israel at that time, to come and serve in his army and basically lead the army into battle. And so he chooses to do that. And as he chooses to lead the army into battle, he has victory after victory after victory. Always winning, always winning. David never lost. But the result of that is the, the cheers of the people reached the ears of Saul. And his insecurities um, began to creep up and he realized that there is no way um, that this, I'm going to let this guy take over. And so Saul, in his own fears, attempted to kill David. One story is told where he throws a spear and tries to pin him to the wall. And, and another time he chases him and hunts him down in his own house. And so David concocts this plan with his good friend Jonathan who just happened to be the son of the king to escape and to get away and to run. And so David, the story continues with David in 1 Samuel 21 with him running into a priest in the land of Nob named Ahimelech and Ahimelech says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Because he knew David was a military leader and he knew he always traveled with troops, but here he is by himself alone. And so a little bit later, after David gets some supplies from Ahimelech, he ends up in a cave—the cave of Adullam—in First Samuel 22. And then later in chapter 24 and and 26, he's in a cave. Could be similar to these caves. Can we go back to that previous slide? Could be similar to these caves here that are spread all over throughout the land of Israel. And David seems to find these places—they're hillsides with. Caves carved all throughout them over the centuries. And we know from the recent conflicts in Afghanistan, which is very similar to the land of Israel in that ancient Near East, that these caves not only have entrance points, but they have tunnels that are all underneath of them. And David could have been anywhere in these places. We know in some of the stories he's hiding in the back of the cave when Saul comes into the cave. And so David was on the run. He was hiding and before anybody else came to him, he finds himself very much alone. And I think that's likely what was taking place in, uh, in David's life when he wrote Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is known as a lament psalm. And a lament psalm is a psalm in which David cries out to God. It's basically a cry and a plea to God. Two-thirds of the psalms are laments. They're not all, God, you're wonderful, God, you're great, God, you're merciful and glorious. But they're cries and pleas to God. And it's kind of fascinating because if I think about the fact that two-thirds of the Psalms are cries out to God, it helps me see that maybe when I'm at places when I cry out to God and I'm desperate with God, that's more normal than unusual. But for most of us, we think that's kind of unusual. And that's not the way we should be. Not so with David. Not so with David. Psalm 140 to 143, there's four individual laments. Psalm 140 just begins with, rescue me. 141, I call to you quickly. 143, Lord, hear my prayer. And so David is just crying out to God over and over and over again. And in this particular psalm, I don't think David got an answer. We're going to see that a little bit later in the psalm. He's calling out to God. He's asking for help, but God didn't solve his problem. And I'm kind of glad that the psalm was written that way because I think if the problems always got solved it would discourage me because the problems i face don't always get solved at least not the way i want them to be and so to know that david had problems that didn't get solved or didn't get solved quickly or the way he wanted gives me a little bit of hope and confidence in my own journey so look there, if you have your Bibles, uh, in Psalm one forty one 142, excuse me David begins by saying, I cried aloud to God. I lifted up my voice to the Lord for mercy. He's begging, he's pleading with God, he's asking for help, he's asking for direction. And then in verse 2, he says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. It sounds like David is writing his experience as a way to instruct us. Does that make sense? He's writing, this is what happened, this is what I did, and this can guide you when you face difficult situations in much the same way. I cried out to the Lord, I lifted up my voice, I poured out my complaints to Him. And in verse 2, as he talks about pouring out his complaints, the story of David is a story in which David found himself in a difficult situation, and he didn't do anything to get himself there. We talked a little bit about that last week. He didn't do anything to get himself there. He didn't commit a crime. He didn't mistreat a woman. He didn't violate God's law. He didn't do anything wrong, but he was on the run. He was being hunted down, and he was being chased by Saul. He talks about this in 1 Samuel 24, verse 9 and 10, when he says this. If we can bring that up on the screen, 1 Samuel 24, verse 9 and 10. Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming me? This is David talking to Saul. Some urge me to kill you, but I spared you. Verse 11. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And and David is complaining to God about his current situation when he's done nothing wrong to deserve that. Can you empathize a little bit with David? Time in your life when you didn't really do anything wrong, but life took a swing and hit you pretty hard. You didn't do anything to chase your spouse away. to provoke your kids to hate you or to abandon God. He didn't do anything to lose your job or to cause your friend that you thought would have your back to stab you in the back. You know, it seems pretty legitimate for David to be complaining to God because God's supposed to love him and God's supposed to be the God of mercy and grace and, and, and compassion and understanding and God should be there to take care of him, provide for them and be with him. And yet, he's now left hung out to dry, if you will. And it says there in verse 2 that he's pouring out his complaints, telling him all of his troubles. You know, one of the things that we teach here at, at CCC in a lot of different settings, te- one of the things that we're committed to is teaching about how to communicate in a healthy way. And one of the things we do is we teach people how to complain. You're like, what do you mean you teach people how to complain? people shouldn't complain. I'm like, well, yeah, complaining is actually a good thing. Being critical, not so good. Complaining, actually a good thing. Because sometimes things don't go well, and you got to tell somebody about it, right? But we don't just talk, teach people how to complain. We talk about a complaint with a request for change. And so when you complain about something, this is a good parenting tip, you have to bring a request for change, or the complaint's not going to be even heard. And, um, But here, David's just unloading on God. Now, we don't know what he's complaining about. I'm speculating, of course. But I think it's probably a good possibility that David's complaining that God has left him hang out to dry, and he didn't do anything wrong. Makes sense that, God, you would leave someone who you know, abandoned you, or ignored you, or rejected your ways, or, or treated other people badly, for you to let them kind of live in their own pain and misery for a little while. I can live with that one, God. That one makes sense. They deserve that. But, but not to a guy who's been a model citizen, if you will. Why, why do that to him? Well, David goes on to describe what's going on on the inside in verse 3, when my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. David recognizes that in the midst of crying out to God that God's still there. In the midst of the emotional and physical fatigue that he's facing, that God's still around. It's kind of that that subconscious sense that you have that someone's there in the room with you when you're not quite fully awake. Mm-hmm. You know, often I would go in and, and when my kids were young and, and I would just go in and check on them, you know, before I went to bed. And, you know, when they were really little, kind of put my hand on and make sure they're still breathing. Okay, they're still alive, you know, and, you know, and just kind of peek in on them. And, and most of the time they would be sound asleep, except whenever I tried to swap out that tooth. They would always wake up. That never worked, but, you know. Um, and even now, if their door's cracked open, sometimes I'll just kind of pick my, poke my head in and they're sleeping. But, but David, in the midst of crying out to God, he had this sense that God was still around. God was still there. God was still present. And he says, in the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Not only is he aware that God's present, but he's aware of the traps that are around him. You know what a hunter does is a hunter finds the path that the animal's going to be going on. And he, and he creates a trap and then covers it with things part of that natural surrounding. So the animal will not see that trap. And he'll snap shut and catch him. And David kind of knows there's a trap there. And there's a trap there. And there's a trap there. And so he's aware of what's going on. He knows what's happening all around him. But verse 4 I think really gets at the essence of his struggle. Look what he says in verse 4. Look and see. There was no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Four times, David says, I'm all alone. There's no one. I'm all alone. There's no one. I'm all by myself. There's no one. I'm all alone. There's no one. Four times he says that. First thing he says is, there's no one at my right hand. You know, when you think of a right hand man, the person at the right hand, you know, the Bible talks about the, Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father the one that's always there, the person that's always got your back, the person that's going to be there no matter what through thick and thin, whether that's a a sibling or a great friend or a spouse. We kind of expect and we want to go through life with someone that's going to have our backs covered. And David says, I don't have anyone, anyone covering my back. No one. And then he says, no one is concerned for me. As I sat with that and thought about that, I thought, "Is that really true? Is it true that no one is concerned for David?" Well, his wife told him to go and run and hide so Saul didn't kill him. I think that evidence is a little concern for him. His friend Jonathan came up with a plan so that David would be able to escape the clutches of his own father. I think that gives evidence of someone who is concerned for him. If you read in 1 Samuel 22, David's alone in the cave of Adullam, and right in the end of that verse, he says, and shortly after that, his family showed up to support him. I think that shows concern. But in that moment in time, David's reality was that no one is concerned about me. No one. I've experienced this with people where I sit down with someone who's in a very difficult, going through a very difficult time, a very difficult place, whether it's a student or a, a man or woman in a relationship, and they'll say, I am just all alone. There's no one. I'll say, No one? And they're like, No one. And I'll know of someone that's a good friend of theirs, and I'll say, Well, what about this person that's a good friend? Well, yeah, they're kind of there, but there really isn't anyone. And then I'll say, "Well, what about this person I know that's been checking on you and their small group leader?" Well, yeah, yeah, them too. there. but there really isn't. And what you start to discover is that sometimes our reality in the moment is not what is really happening. It's real to us because it's our reality, but it's not what's really happening. And so I think in this story of David with him being in this cave, you can find historical evidence to validate the fact that there were lots of people concerned about David. There were people willing to hide David. There were people willing to give David food, give David weapons, give David safe passage. But in that moment in time, David could only see that there's no one concerned about me. And when we face times of aloneness... Those are really moments when I believe the evil one can influence our thoughts and distort what reality really is. Where it feels like we are alone even though there are people all around us. He says there is no refuge. No one cares for my life at all. You know, there's value in being alone you hear me talk about it all the time, of kind of stepping away from the, the rat race of life and just having times of quiet and solitude where you are, are able to, to open what, the God's Word and read something or listen to God or just ask God questions and kind of sit with those questions. But that's not what's going on with David. He's forced into being alone in this situation. And enforced in being alone, his, his perspective, his view on reality, there's something missing, something awry. But in verse 5, it changes all of a sudden. Changes all of a sudden. And this is one of the things that I struggle with in the book of Psalms. I really love the book of Psalms. I love the honest, gut-level reality that David describes his life. I love the hope that he finds in his relationship with God. But I struggle to reconcile how quickly that happens. Because it doesn't work like that in my life. It doesn't work like that. Because when I feel very much alone... I can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden, God is with me and he's amazing and he's done wonderful things. It, doesn't, it just doesn't happen like that for me. Now, over days and, and sometimes weeks, I can get there. But I, I can't get there as quickly as David seems to get there. Now, unfortunately, we don't know how long David took, as I said last week, to write a psalm. It could have been weeks he wrote the first part, set it aside, put it in his pack, and then a few weeks later pulled that out. Oh wow, I was in a bad place. I'm not in a bad place now. Let me write a little more. You know, I kind of wonder if that's how these were written because that seems more true to life, doesn't it? You know, but but David's perspective changed in this situation. But I think the rest of the psalm is going to validate that his that his circumstances didn't change. His circumstances didn't change. How did his perspective change? Look in verse 5. He says, I cry to you, Lord. He says, I say you are my refuge. What did he just say in verse 4? Can we go back to verse 4? What did he just say in verse 4? I have what? No refuge. Now suddenly in verse 5, you are my refuge. What else he says in verse 5? He says, my portion in the land of the living. Uh, what a portion was, what he's describing there, is in the Old Testament, there was a group of individuals called the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, and they were responsible to take care of the t- tabernacle and eventually the temple. Uh, they were kind of like the pastors of that day, in, in which that was their job to take care of, of the place of worship. And so they could not work a regular job. They couldn't raise livestock. They couldn't grow things in the field. So what God said is whenever someone would bring a sacrifice to the altar a portion of that sacrifice would be set aside and that's what the priest would live off of. So no sacrifices, the priest starved. That's the way it worked. But as long as the people brought their sacrifice, so the priest had to rely on God to make sure that the people brought their part and then a part of that was set aside for the priest. And so for the Levites, their portion, God was going to provide. They couldn't do anything to earn it. They couldn't do anything to earn it. And so what does David say here? David says, not only God are you my refuge, but you're also my portion. You're that exact part that I need that I can't take care of myself. You're exactly what I need that I can't do anything to obtain myself. Think, wow, that's a very different perspective than the guy who just said, what? No one is concerned for me. And now he's saying, God, you will take care of exactly what I need that I can't take care of myself. I love David's perspective. I'm amazed by his perspective because his situation didn't really change a lot. You say, what do you mean by that, John? Well, look at verse 6. He says, listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. I don't think David's situation changed. I don't think it changed. But his outlook changed. His perspective changed. So I believe it's possible to change your perspective when your circumstances don't change. His perspective changed, but his situation did not. His perspective changed, but his situation did not. You see, the truth is, you can be kind and gracious to someone who's wronged you, even if they've never asked for forgiveness. You can be generous to someone who's taken from you and not paid you back even if you're still waiting for them to pay you back. You can be loving to a sibling, a parent, a friend who's wronged you and never owned up to their part. You know, our culture says that when this has happened, you're on one side and they're on the other. And the only way you're going to get to the middle is you you take a step and then you wait. They have to take a step. And then if they take a step, you take another step. And, and maybe you'll get an arbitrator to help you meet in the middle. And you're never going to cross that line. They've got to come to this middle line and, and they've got to meet you here in the middle. That's what has to happen. That's the only way you can restore things. But I don't see that being the way God works. Because God came all the way from heaven in the sun his son Jesus, to this earth, and he was willing to die on the cross for people who hated him before they ever came to him. And so I think our perspective can change even when our circumstances don't. I experienced this a few years ago in my own life. There was a situation with someone that I realized had had wronged me very very deeply and I really struggled with what to do and I set some boundaries in that relationship I stepped back from the relationship very significantly but after a period of time I felt God giving me a nudge and I felt God saying John it's time for you to take a step towards that person so I took a step towards him nothing changed I was like all right God I did what you told me to do and I felt God telling me to take another step I took another step nothing changed Felt God give me a nudge, take another step. Nothing changed. Three years, God kept giving me a nudge. Move, 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 move closer, move closer, move towards. Keep being loving, keep being gracious. And then really suddenly, out of the blue, God started to move them. And they took a step forward. And they took another step forward. And they took another step forward. forward. And the amazing thing about this journey for me is I never had a conversation with them about this problem because I never felt God gave me the freedom to do that. So I think it is possible for your perspective to change when your circumstances don't. Fortunately, we believe if the situation changes, I'll change. But David in this story, his outlook changed in verse 5. But in verse 6, his situation did not. In verse 6, he's still crying to God. He's still in a desperate need. He's still saying, rescue me. He's still saying, they're too strong. I don't know if I can make it, God. They're going to overpower me. And then in verse 7, he kind of glimpses down the road and anticipates the future. And look what he says. He says, set me free from my prison. He's still asking God to deliver him. But look at his reasoning that I might praise your name. You know, I know for me when I'm feeling alone in those situations I described, I just don't like to feel that way. I just don't like to feel that way. And, and we're in a culture that tries to avoid the painful things in our lives. So we either go on a, a, a Netflix binge or we you know, binge on our drink of choice or our addiction of choice. You know, We find some way just to numb it so I don't have to feel it. I don't want to sit in the pain and the sadness and the sorrow of being alone and abandoned and how awful and horrible that is. I just want to get out of it. But David wants to get out of it for a different reason. I'll be honest, I don't usually think like that. Get out of it so I can praise you, God? I just want to get out of it because it sucks and it hurts and it's hard. It's awful. That's why I want out of it. David says, I want out of it because I want to praise your name. And then look how he closes. He says, then the righteous will gather about me. Why? Because of your goodness to me. We talked last week about the two things that that we have to hold on to in our faith when we go through difficult times. God's goodness and God's faithfulness. That even if life is not good, that God is good. And even when I feel alone, God is still there with me. He will never leave me. He will never abandon me. And so David faces this deep aloneness, this deep loneliness in his life. And he reminds himself of some powerful truths that alter his perspective even though his situation didn't change. And so I want to invite you just to take a moment and think about where your life is right now because I know the reality is in a room that's full of people that there are people that feel very alone this morning. You might be sitting next to someone you love dearly and feel very alone this morning. You might be alone in your struggles, alone in your pain, alone in the tears at night that no one sees. Where do you turn when you find yourself alone? Where do you go? You know, some of you that are highly relational, you go to other people. Some of us, as I said, we have a culture that gives us everything we need to just numb that aloneness. But David invites us to take a different path. David invites us to cry out to God, to plead with Him, And to recognize that He will be there with you when you face those times of being alone. And not only will He be there with you, but like David said, He will be your portion. He will be enough. Because the truth is, there are times when your spouse is not going to be enough there are times when your parents are not going to be enough. There are times when your friends are not going to be enough. There are times when your small group is not going to be enough. There are times when your pastors are not going to be enough. There are times when your church is not going to be enough. But David says, please don't walk away and forget that God will always be enough for you. No matter what you're facing, no matter what your struggle, no matter how alone, He is your refuge, and He will always be enough. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? And as we do, I just want to give a moment for those of you that might be facing times of great aloneness. Um, I just want you to cry out to God. Pour your heart out to Him. And if you're not in a place like that, but you have been, and God has set you free, would you just praise Him this morning? God, I thank you for David's transparency. I thank you for his honesty in describing not just his struggle, but in describing our struggle. Our struggle, God, at times when we feel all alone, even when there might be people around us that love us and care about us we feel incredibly alone and so God the goal is not to avoid those times or to try to keep them from happening but in the midst of when they do occur to know that you are a God that invites us to run to you to cry out to you um, that You will be our portion. You will be what we need that no one else can provide. And so, Lord, whether we're in this struggle, have been in it recently, we'll be in it soon. Stamp on our hearts that You are our refuge and that You will be all that we need. In Your name, amen. Thank you.